Well, tis the season for Christmas cards and Christmas letters. You know, some of the letters we receive are highly anticipated because we're brought up to date on the activities of family and friends, and some are actually very interesting, and some are, well, they're annual Christmas letters. We generally enjoy getting them, but they're really not all that important. They're not life-changing Letters, Not like those that used to begin greetings and salutations from the President of the United States. Or, we regret to inform you. Or simply, Dear John. You know, it's amazing how words written on a piece of paper, or in an email, or a text, can change a life. And of all of the life-changing letters ever to be written, a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome nearly 2,000 years ago has to be the most powerful. Paul's letter has not only impacted individuals who have read it, its effects have mushroomed through the lives of righteous men who have been changed by it. Augustine one of the greatest early church fathers was converted by two verses from Romans 13. As a young man, he struggled with sexual passions until in AD 386, at the age of 32, something happened that he writes about in his confessions. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where... No one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let the tears flow freely. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, saying and repeating over and over, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpret it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. So I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots and drunken parties... Not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, goes on to write this. In 1515, another professor was overtaken by a similar spiritual crisis. Like everybody else in medieval Christendom, Martin Luther had been brought up in the fear of God, death, judgment, and hell. Because the surest way to gain heaven, it was thought, was to become a monk 
1505, at the age of 21, he entered the Augustinian cloister at Erfurt, where he prayed and fasted, sometimes for days on end, and adopted other extreme austerities. I was a good monk, he wrote later. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Luther probed every resource of contemporary Catholicism for assuaging the anguish of a spirit alienated from God. But nothing pacified his tormented conscience until, having been appointed professor of the Bible at Wittenberg University, he studied and expounded first the Psalms and then Romans. At first, he was angry with God, he later confessed, because he seemed to him to be more a terrifying judge than a merciful Savior. Where might he find a gracious God? What could Paul mean in Romans 1.17 when he stated that the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel? Luther tells how his dilemma was resolved. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and Nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Luther later wrote in his famous preface to Romans, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Some 200 years later, when Luther's preface to Romans was being read in a Moravian meeting in London, John Wesley found his heart strangely warmed, and the fire that was lit resulted in the great awakening in England. John Bunyan was studying Romans in the Bedford jail when he was so caught up with the themes of this great letter that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. We could go on. I think you get the idea. Today, we are beginning a study of one of the most influential letters ever written. And in the introduction to this life-changing letter, 
We're giving a glimpse of the Savior who makes the change possible. The saints to whom the letter is addressed and the servant who is used by God to write it. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans is a life-changing letter because it is the clearest and most complete presentation of the gospel to be found anywhere. Now, many of us are going to be reading the daily message next year. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible arranged in daily readings that will take us through the Bible in a year. And in his introduction to Romans, found in Appendix B, he writes... The event that split history into before and after and changed the world took place about 30 years before Paul wrote this letter. The event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, took place in a remote corner of the extensive Roman Empire, the province of Judea in Palestine. Hardly anyone noticed. Certainly no one in busy and powerful Rome. And when his letter arrived in Rome, hardly anyone read it, certainly no one of influence. There was much to read in Rome, imperial decrees, exquisite poetry, finely crafted moral philosophy, and much of it was world class. And yet, in no time as such things go, this letter left all those other writings in the dust. Paul's letter to the Romans has had a far greater impact on its readers than the volumes of all those Roman writers put together. The quick rise of this letter to a peak of influence is extraordinary, written as it was by an obscure Roman citizen without connections. But when we read it ourselves, we begin to realize that it is the letter itself that is truly extraordinary and that no obscurity in writer or readers could have kept it obscure for long. The letter to the Romans is a piece of exuberant and passionate thinking. It is the glorious life of the mind enlisted in the service of God. Paul takes the well-witnessed and devoutly believed fact of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and thinks through its implications. How does it happen that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, world history took a new direction? And at the same moment, the life of every man, woman, and child on the planet was eternally affected. What is God up to? What does it mean that Jesus saves? 
What's behind all this and where is it going? These are the questions that drive Paul's thinking. Paul's mind is supple and capacious. He takes logic and argument, poetry and imagination, scripture and prayer, creation and history and experience, and weaves them into this letter that has become the premier document of Christian theology. Romans is indeed the premier document of Christian theology because it is the gospel of God, the good news from God concerning his son. And it's the good news that the world had been waiting for since the first sin in the Garden of Eden when God promised that the seed of woman would someday crush the serpent's head. Jesus is that seed of woman. He is the one of whom the prophets spoke and of whom the angels said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That Savior was Jesus, the promised Son of David. But he was more than that. He was also the Son of God. His holiness and his resurrection from the dead proved him to be more than human. He was God in the flesh. He had come to earth to bring together God and man. And the best way to do that was to actually become both God and man. In fact, Jesus is the only one who is able to unite man and God because Jesus alone is both man and God. You know, we could never bridge the gulf of sin that separated us from our Creator. Only the incarnate God could do that. And his doing so was an act of pure grace. It was something we could never do for ourselves and something we did not deserve. Through him and through him alone, our sins can be forgiven. If we believe what he did for us and trust him enough to obey him, expressing our faith as he instructed us to do, he cancels our debt of sin and considers us to be righteous. This is the gospel of God. The good news of a Savior come to earth that we are going to celebrate in three weeks. And the good news we're going to explore in detail in this life-changing letter. A letter that was addressed to the saints. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. 
For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is addressing this letter to the beloved of God in Rome, those who had been called as saints. Now, saints aren't a special category of believer. All who are called of Jesus Christ and are therefore beloved of God are saints. To be a saint is to be set apart, not from other believers, but from the world. To be holy and acceptable in God's eyes, and that we are, if we are in Christ. And that's what the believers in Rome were. They were saints. Now, how they came to be saints, we don't know. We have no record of the founding of the church in Rome. Most believe it was started by visitors from Rome who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, who became Christians and then went home and evangelized their neighbors and their friends. However, it happened by the time of Paul's writing in 57 or 58 AD, there were many saints in Rome meeting in homes throughout the city. And Paul was very thankful for them, as were Christians around the world. In fact, he says, their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Everyone was talking about the believers in Rome, how they were growing and maturing in Christ. And they were doing so without having an apostle there to teach them nor the writings of an apostle to guide them. But they did have an apostle praying for them. Paul said he prayed for them unceasingly, not only praying for them, but praying that he might be able to actually come to them and impart to them some spiritual gift. As an apostle, He could lay hands on them and impart to them gifts that would even better equip them for the work of ministry. They were saints. They were growing in faith. They were striving to do God's will as best they understood it, but they weren't as yet established. Their foundation wasn't as deep as it needed to go. They weren't as strong as they could be. They weren't completely mature in their faith. They were, in some respects, still babes. Now, that's not an indictment. Every church should have spiritual babes in it. If it doesn't, it's going to die of old age. So we shouldn't be too critical of immature Christians, unless they've been immature for too long. The church in Rome was a young church and didn't yet have all the resources needed to really mature. So Paul prayed that before long, that would change. That he would be able to come and impart to them some needed spiritual gifts. And they, in turn, would be able to encourage him 
In the meantime, what he has to say in this letter will put them on the road to maturity. For as we will discover, this is truly a life-changing letter written by a true servant of God. Verses 13 through 17. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And he proves this to be the case as he reveals his plans and his motivation for wanting to visit Rome. He wanted the saints in Rome to know that he had often planned to come to Rome, but the press of ministry in other areas made it impossible. And now it appeared the time was right. He was on the last leg of his third missionary journey, having evangelized all of Asia Minor and Macedonia, and was writing from Corinth, where he had spent three months. He had to go back to Jerusalem to deliver an offering from the Gentile churches to the Jewish Christians who were in desperate need there, but he planned to head for Rome as soon as he could on his way to Spain. He was hopeful that while in Rome he might not only be able to spend time encouraging and helping them, but that they might also obtain some fruit, that he also might obtain some fruit for the Lord there, that he might be able to actually lead people to Christ in Rome and evangelize in the city. You see, Paul recognized that he was under obligation to share the good news. He was a debtor. That's what the word means. He was a debtor to all men, cultured and uncultured, wise or foolish. And he became a debtor not by borrowing from them, but by being given something to give to them. Christ had put him under obligation to others. Christ had entrusted Paul something that had to be shared with others, so he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And preaching in the capital of the world didn't intimidate him, nor was he at all hesitant to preach the same gospel there that he preached everywhere else. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel of God. For it is the power of God that brings radical change into the life of everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed and made available to all who will receive it by faith and then allow that faith to grow and develop in their life. Indeed, the gospel 
has the power to make us righteous, to make us right before God, and to then empower us to live a life that's pleasing to God, a life lived by faith, by trusting in the God who not only made us, but who has now also saved us. And that is the life-changing message of Paul's letter to the Romans. Over the next weeks and months, we're going to examine this letter in detail. And through it, we're going to learn more of the Savior who can change us. We're going to become saints that are well-established and servants who are under obligation, who are eager to preach, to share the gospel, who are not at all ashamed of the gospel. Because this life-changing letter takes us to the foot of the cross and tells us there's room at the cross for everyone. This is a letter that's intended to change everyone's life. But in order for that to happen, we have to know this letter and be willing to share the gospel that's revealed in these pages. Indeed, millions have been led by this very letter from the manger to the cross. And there's room at the cross for you. Let's stand.